White Noise, A Daredevil Thick, Part 3 of the November series, written by Saturn Child, read by Dr. Fumbles McStupid, rating Mature, Archive Warnings, Graphic Depictions of Violence, Relationships, Frank Castle and Matt Murdock, Frank Castle and Karen Page, Frank Castle slash Matt Murdock, Additional Tags, Frat Week, Kid, Freeform, Wumptober 2021, Amnesia, Memory Loss, Childhood Memories, Childhood Trauma, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Flashbacks, Panic Attacks, Triggers, Blood and Injury, Injury Recovery, Post-Concussion Syndrome, Alternate Universe Canon Divergence, Daredevil Season 3, Past Child Abuse, Past Sexual Abuse, Recovery, Wump, Hallucinations, Medical Inaccuracies, Attempted Sexual Assault, Hurt Comfort, Angst, Pre-Slash, Pre-Relationship, Mutual Pining, Developing Relationship, Protective Frank Castle, Unhealthy Coping Mechanisms, Disassociation, Handsome Wounded Duck Matt. Summary Why didn't you tell me you were hallucinating? Frank asks in an undertone, something somber in his voice. Laying low isn't as fun as it's cut out to be, Frank thinks, especially when you have a TBI patient whose lawyer brain and sheer stubbornness won't be hindered by his memory loss. Someone dead set on killing said patient, and your own internal crisis going on. Trigger warnings for this work will be at the end of the audio file at this time. One nineteen thirty one. White noise. A constant background noise that drowns out other sounds. No color and no wonder. Wanting no end at all, yet vaguely seeing. Something of peace and breathing and not being. Paper cut. Tragedies become memories, living, dying. Sound is dead. Breathing is only a feeling. Frank finds the edge of the tattered fleece blanket and pulls it over Murdoch's shoulders for the fourth time since dawn before going back to his research. Hands flying over clinking plastic keyboard, faded white letters, and stains roughly the shape of his digits. Possible Punisher sighting. He reads the article quickly. Lacks evidence besides a female eyewitness claiming she recognized his silhouette from the news, and the fact that bullets were found on the scene. The address isn't mentioned. Neither is Murdoch's name. No news of six dead mercenaries found at the wanted lawyer's flat. No police report or shooting. Nothing. FBI agent investigated. Albanians killed. Fisk's transport detail ambushed. FBI agents injured and dead. Nothing pertinent. Not now. Besides the guy's face. Strangely familiar. The same that has been going through his head since the attack on Murdoch's house two days before returns in a loop, running useless circles around his brain. Fisk makes a deal with the feds, gets shanked in Supermax, transferred to the presidential hotel, ambushed by Albanians, saved by one lone FBI agent. Red calls him. Frank finds him brained in a warehouse covered in blood, dead guys all around them. The moment Red steps back into his flat, Fisk sends Merks in broad daylight to take him out. He either wanted to get back at Murdoch for putting him there, or... Or he knew he was Daredevil. Mercenaries in broad daylight, though? 
It either showed desperation or a man who had nothing to fear from the police or the Federal Bureau itself. Frank digs his digits into the corners of his eyes, thumb and forefinger holding tight to the crooked bridge of his nose. An exhale, and his large, aching palms snap the laptop shut. Murdoch shifts at the sound, a tiny jump of his shoulders indicating the startle. The covers shift with his squirming, fall again to expose a pale shoulder, prickled like a braille page from the chill. He had spent the day before in some kind of disassociative state, obeyed commands sometimes, but mostly just lied there, eyes open and body completely still, except when he did talk, but then it was just one word, caught in a loop. Danger. Nobody's in danger, Red. We're okay. Danger. You're okay. Nobody's hurt. Go back to sleep. Frank stands up, takes the corners of the blanket again with a sigh, and tucks them back around Red's neck. Out of habit more than necessity, he checks the sutures for any sign of bleeding, pus, or serious liquid. He had cleaned them, checked the scarring over Red's lower abdomen and thigh now that the sutures were out. Didn't touch the ones in his head, though. He was due a check-in with Kurt anyway. The bandages around his hands were still pink. One of the cuts hadn't been deep enough for stitching, but it was in a bad place. Every little twitch of Red's knuckles got it bleeding again. Nicks and shallow cuts surrounding it, framing them like a halo. Nothing Murdoch hasn't survived before, which isn't saying much. Last he heard of the devil before this shit show, he had been trapped under a collapsed skyscraper in Hell's Kitchen, had the whole thing fall on top of his head. Figures that wouldn't have taken him down. Frank is tempted to say nothing can by this point, but circumstances have changed. Only takes one wrong move, Frank, Kurt would say. Tearing the wrong ligament, severing the wrong muscle, and you're down for good. Murdoch's breathing changes like an omen moments before he awakens. Frank's been getting used to the sound of it, deep, relaxed breaths turning choppy, shallow, and hadn't noticed. He listened to the change, the shift of ribs allowing lungs to expand full of air, for the telltale, there, abrupt inhale, a pause, and then a long, carefully measured exhale. Frank sits back against the creaking old chair and watches Red twitch under the sheets, back turned to him. He moves. The blanket falls from his right shoulder again. Frank doesn't try to straighten it back this time. He meets Red's first words with a grunt of his own, brings restless fingers to scrape over smooth wood, catches the splintered edges with his nails, digs them into the hollowed-out nicks, carved again and again with fingernails until he couldn't wash out the dark stains anymore. He stands up once Red turns, pushing the blanket down his torso and staring up at the ceiling. Heads to the kitchen. The whole emotional trauma shit and activity from two days before hadn't done him any good, and he was clearly still out of sorts. Eyes lethargic where they oscillate from the ceiling to the wall, sunlight reflecting dully on the damaged retinas. He peruses for a clean glass. One thing he's come to realize about Red the last twelve days. You can fool his ears, if you try. But you can't fool his nose. Or tongue, for that matter. Unwashed cups get him the disgusted, pissed-off face. Anything he doesn't like eating gets Frank the puppy dog fucking looks. Shoves the glass of water into Red's hands as soon as he's up and leaning against the headboard. Peeks over his shoulder at the sound of rustling sheets and fleece blankets, before getting one for himself. Gets back, only to see Red doing his smack of lips routine. Tongue working over his teeth with that puppy look again. 
forefinger twitching along the hem of his sweatpants, scratching at the skin underneath it. His right hand is unsurprisingly uncooperative on the task of getting a proper hold on the cup. When Murdoch fails a third time, Frank throws patience out of the window and sits down by the bed, enveloping a cold, shaky hand with his and helping him find a grip around the cup, clenching his fingers forcefully over Red's. Thanks. Barely loud enough for his ears to catch. He ducks his gaze in favor of missing that ridiculous look Red puts on his face when he's thanking him, catches glossy red paper from the gift half hidden under the pillow, looks away. Matthew drinks slowly, blinking sluggishly through each gulp. Frank gets tired of the fucking creaks of the chair and brings one from the kitchen, straddles it at a reasonable distance from the redhead, close enough to jump in should he let go of the glass. There's been enough broken glasses around Red recently for him to know it's not safe, should that cup break. With his head messy like it is, Frank isn't sure if he would jump away from it or clench his palms around the shards until it bled. Headache? No. A frown. Why can't I move my hands right? Frank squints at his face, every inch as clueless as he had expected. He had been doing it a lot recently, having episodes and forgetting about them afterwards. A window broke. You got hurt. Murdoch's head snaps up, eyes big when they land between his arms and torso. You're lying. Yeah. Frank ignores it. Who am I? Matthew's eyes go up to the ceiling and what Frank recognizes now is an attempt to roll in disdain. Do we really have to? Yeah, we do. Kid almost gets himself shredded in a broken window when he wants to know. Fucking hell, Red. Shoulders go back. His spine straightens. Chin goes up. Shit. And it's not even a fighting stance. Frank had seen that in the hospital room. Yeah. But mostly he saw that one in court. Kid's geared up. You're Frank. A shaky right hand pulls the fleece blanket away from him, exposing his naked upper body. You have military training, but apparently don't answer to anyone. You don't have a job or a license, but you carry a lot of guns. You killed people yesterday, and your vitals kept steady like you were washing the dishes or doing your laundry. You've had me for almost two weeks, and you somehow failed to mention that I'm a target for someone powerful enough to send armed mercenaries after me in the middle of the day. Murdoch takes a long breath, lets it out with a defeated sigh. Who are you, Frank? Can't lie right then. Not with those eager, desperate eyes stripping him back. A while back. Voice goes low. Frank clears his throat. There was a shooting at Central Park. Three gangs. He can almost smell it, the stench of death, when it started creeping up on him. When he woke up and realized, They killed my family. A whisper. All of them. Matthew turns to him then. The same attentive, considerative gaze Frank recognized from the graveyard willing to carry a few more burdens, a few more pains, like he didn't have enough of them. Gets him remembering that this is the man that cried for his daughter, for Frank. Frank who had bounced a bullet off his head not a week before, who had terrorized him into killing, taped a gun to his hand and chained him to a chimney. And now Red was here, with a whole lot less baggage than he had the day they met, all those years wiped clean out of his head, and still willing to hear it. Share the burden again. Got shot in the head. A flinch. But I survived, Red. Went after them. Took all of them down. He lets go of the wooden backrest once it protests against the strength of his grip. You were my lawyer when I got caught. A head tilt. I got you out of prison? He asks in a small voice, slightly odd. 
Nah. He fixes his eyes back on Red. That was me. He frowns, considering the new piece of information. Maybe putting more questions in his head than answering them. He's a lawyer in the care of a wanted murderer. You help me then, he offers. It's barely consolation, but it's all he can give. Even when I didn't want you to. He's waiting for a lot of things. A speech about revenge not being the same as justice. About second chances. And life is sacred, Frank. He's certainly not expecting what he gets. I'm sorry. A pause. Frank lets it stretch until it snaps too thin. What? About your family. A flicker of pain through his eyes. I'm sorry you lost them. Nausea hits Frank hard. Maybe it's something about hearing it coming out of Red's mouth. The raw truth of something morbid, horrifying, coming from someone. Shit. Someone good. The type of good you don't believe when you see it. Looks unreal. Yeah. He looks at him. Really looks at him. Yeah, Red. Me too. The silence grows, but it doesn't offer much more than an attempt at catharsis. Maybe an understanding. Facing a shared loss. Loss of loved ones. Of memory. Of control. It seems like hours later, maybe, when Murdoch finally speaks up again. What do we do now? He asks. Voice cracks into a whisper. What do they want with me? See if we can wait for the dust to settle. Head back to the cabin if we can. Get you out of the city. Although Frank seriously doubted it, this whole thing smelled of fisk. Of power and manipulation and well-thought-out plans. Smelled of him past the point of pulling strings. Assholes running the whole show. This place. It's a safe house. Murdoch nods. Might keep us out of trouble for a while. Frank sighs, stands up with his trigger finger jumping against his upper thigh. Talking of them got his whole skin creeping, stress building up, muscles tensing. The carousel song going round and round in his head. How's the head, Red? As if on cue, Red reaches to touch the sutures. Frank snatches his wrist, avoids pressing into the bandages. Hey, don't touch it. Doesn't let go, for some reason. Callous fingers tight around the shivering skin. It's... It's fine. His voice goes tight. Breathing goes odd. He does that thing again, spilling out of himself like a broken cup, head flying miles away from his body. Or at least he attempts to. He's back in the room soon, flinching at sounds Frank can't hear. Hyper alert, goosebumps rising in cycles all over his arms. Frank sighs, leans back while slowly letting go of Murdoch's wrist. Frowns when Murdoch flinches, hand slamming down against the mattress and immediately clenching around the fleece, bunching it and letting it spill from the cracks between his fingers. He worries the fabric between his palm and the bed until his breathing evens, his shoulders stop jumping and muscles coiling at everything. You know... You're gonna have to tell me sometime, Red. Murdoch either does everything he can to avoid his eyes landing on Frank, or he has no clue where Frank is in the first place when he responds. Tell you what. Frank sits back down, cocks his head back. Come on, he chides in an undertone. Don't do that. Murdoch deflates with a shaky sigh. I know. He scratches at his neck gingerly. Frank eyes the scrapes on his forearms from jumping that building. But I didn't lie. The pain isn't too bad. Right, he says softly. Hey, Red? Matt turns to him, eyes lost somewhere on his neck. 
chest going up, up, and down in stutters. Up, up, down. Breathe. A flush rises up to his cheeks and colors his neck pink, too. But Red tries. He's been needing that a lot. Someone to remind him to eat. Breathe. Take a break. Come here. Frank stands up once more, sits down on the edge of the bed, leaves plenty of space for Red to retreat away if he needs to, can feel him reading him before he makes a decision, curious little head tilts before deciding and inching slowly towards the Marine. Frank is mindful as he traces the sutures, checks for the third time for any signs of infection. The sickly red is down to a less concerning shade of vermilion. The wound didn't close as quickly as the gunshot to the thigh or the slash on his stomach, but it was scabbing. Should pay Kurt a visit to be sure, he grunts, presses his palm against Red's forehead before making a sound to indicate the movement. Red reacts better to it when he knows something's coming. Can't tell if it's healing as it's supposed to. Who's Kurt? A friend? Help me when you were hurt. Matthew smiles softly, and Frank stops where he's moving, drawn back to the slight push of lips. His whole face lights up with it. I thought you were the one who put my head back together. Frank can't help a snore at the quip, shakes his head. Let's go. He walks up to the closet first, perusing for something Murdoch could use. It was a fierce cold outside, and winter was approaching. Grabs a pair of black wool gloves, threadbare and probably smelling like all the years it spent on the bottom of Frank's bags. Forages for a scarf and a thick sweater to go with the coat he had brought from the kid's place. Put that on. Murdoch cocks his head in that ridiculous way of his before taking the offered items. Frank frowns at the pouty, plush mouth when the redhead looks over the chapped lower lip. He finds that he can't look away. Red suddenly goes still, straightening up subtly. Frank clears his throat and turns away, feeling see-through. I'll get you a goddamn chapstick on the way back, yeah? Come on. Ding, ding. He lost that round. Red stays still for a moment longer in appraisal, and Frank feels like an asshole who just handed over ammunition to the enemy. He strolls towards the door, ignores the nagging chip on his shoulder until he can't. And drink some fucking water, Red. He opens the apartment door after checking his handgun, shoving an army knife and a holster and extra ammo on the inside pocket of his jacket. Leaves Red's cane and glasses where he can find them, although he doubts he'll be taking them. Keys, burner, money. Curses himself as he reaches for some paracetamol, and the likely event that Red's headaches make a comeback. Murdoch shouldn't be moving half as much as he is, but this shithole has no elevator, which makes getting him a wheelchair to avoid steers useless. Waiting for Red to get on with it, Frank leans against the doorframe, eyes casually sweeping his surroundings. There was the possibility that Army Lady and Knee Jerk were alive. If they were... They either recognized Frank or they didn't. If they did, there's a small chance Fisk has people trying to find where he is. He had nothing but contempt for the son of a bitch, but there was something about the immediacy with which Fisk established his control, managed to get himself out of Supermax, put the FBI after Matt Murdock, and send someone to kill him the very second Red stepped inside his apartment. Trigger finger taps, taps, taps against his thigh. He knows the layout of the presidential hotel by now. Frank could drive Red to Kurtz and go there. End this. But that meant leaving his one-legged friend and the concussed amnesic idiot on their own to fend against more mercs. And then the guy from the warehouse shows up, and what in the world are they supposed to do with that? 
Murdoch steps closer as he hides a reddening nose under a dark, coffee-colored scarf. The threadbare fabric probably has some stains when Frank had tried to use it as a tourniquet, but it was functional. Walking down the stairs, Red misses some steps, fingers digging into Frank's biceps the first two or three times his knees decide to buckle out of nowhere. From there on, the Marine manages a subtle grip on his upper arm, steering him close so he can guide him properly and keep him from keeling over if he can. If Murdoch is confused about the different car and the blood under the back tires, he doesn't mention it. By the time Frank drives away from his building, Red's already asleep, face nestled in Frank's scarf. Frank notices them when it's almost too late. He keeps his eyes open and alert all the way to Kurt's place. It's half an hour from East Harlem to Midtown, give or take and low blues rock filled the car from the radio station he had settled in when Red kept flinching from every horn in his sleep. Taking the FDR drive had been a bad idea. They're just driving past East 59th Street when Red suddenly jumps in his seat, sluggishly fumbling for Frank's arm, blinking in sporadic forced motions. Something isn't right. Someone blares a horn, a loud screech of tires, and two black cars flank them from both sides. A woman in a red Bentley just behind them screams when the left car forces her to move out of the way. Frank immediately spins the steering wheel right, stabs his foot down against the accelerator. There's too much traffic. A car tries dodging out of the way and loses control. Left car can't avoid crashing against the lower part of the vehicle. A silver Honda crashes against a truck on his right. A man screams. Brad's fingers dig into his forearm and pulls him away from the window when the first gunshot flies over their heads. The silence precedes the telltale drop of a canister outside the van. Frank can't recognize its shape, can't see where it landed, unbuckles his seatbelt in under a second before throwing himself on top of Red, covering his whole frame with his, at the same time he pulled his head closer to his chest, makes a shell out of his hands to protect his brake. Instead of exploding, smoke bursts up into the air and keeps spreading high. His visibility will take less than a minute to be shot to hell. Another canister... He uses the little time he's got to shove Red on the floor between the passenger seat and the dashboard under the glove box. You stay there, Red! Don't you goddamn move! Another canister. This one hits the window before it falls to the asphalt. A symphony of horns not far behind them, working in tandem with screams. People running. Another car crashing. Frank pulls his AK from under the back seat with a painful tug. Two mags. Frank, there's too many. You don't move from there, Red. You hear me? Frank, you have to listen to me! The gunfire starts. He manages to open the back seat door and jump to the ground, crouching low and squinting through the smoke. The worst of it gathers in front of the car, wind blowing west and taking the fog with it. Frank looks back to Red, curled up and impossibly small under the glove compartment, breathing hard with each gunshot and shattered car window. Shit, he can't. He can't leave the car. Can't force them back and take them on one by one as he'd usually do. Can't leave Red unguarded and helpless in the fucking van, and... Frank takes his eyes away for just a second, crouched low and waiting for a reprieve on the bullets to return fire. Just a second, and it's long enough for Red to shout out and Frank's fingers twitch violently against the trigger. When he turns his gaze back, Red has his face splattered with blood, an assault rifle in his hands and a guy shouting, holding a broken nose, bleeding profusely all over his fingers. Red's relentless. Frank had forgotten. He doesn't give the blonde, bearded guy a second to as much as step away before he's driving a powerful kick between two ribs. Once, twice, three times, until Frank's sure he heard one of them break. 
still manages to shove the butt of the gun to Blondebeard's mouth and finish him off with a kick to the throat. Jesus Christ, Red! He turns away and stands up, the smoke finally dispersing enough for him to spot heads and weapons. At least five from the left, another three from the right. He points and he shoots two down before they notice where the bullets come from. A man screams, getting out of his car with a kid pressed tight to his chest, scrambling away from the black-clad armed mercs approaching Frank's van. He drops into a roll, throws a look over his shoulder. Keep your head down, Red! Gunfire starts again. Frank curses under his breath. There's heat coming from both sides. Red is already spent from a few kicks and looks ready to pass out. Got no time to kill them if he wants to keep Red from getting shot again. For good this time. Frank, there's more! He sees it before Red's finished speaking. A third car approaches from the other side of the road. No identification plaques. Black. Fuck's sake! His voice gets lost in the roaring gunfire. Red screams out some kind of warning seconds before another smoke grenade is thrown at his feet. He takes it and flings it as far as he can before jumping up and returning fire. Another goes down. He narrowly misses a bullet coming from the right. But the mission has changed. His focus, another. Maintaining shooting until he's safely back inside the van. Thinks he sees another come down before he slams the door shut and keeps firing. Put your seatbelt on! Frank, put your goddamn seatbelt on now! Red jumps back into the passenger seat and buckles himself in with shaky hands. He drops the AK with the empty clip down and takes his handgun with his left. The right hand grips at the steering wheel just as he presses down the accelerator. At the sound of the gunshot, Red goes from erratic to completely still, freezing against his seat. The same panic again. Just hang on, Red. He maneuvers between two crashed cars, forgotten in the middle of the road, and drops the handgun as soon as he gains just enough speed to get the others running towards them. Just hang in there. He stops. Matt's breathing is still too quick. Frank uses the time it takes for four remaining bad guys and the other two joining the party to circle the car. The moment three of them step in front, he shoves his feet hard against the pedal. One barely manages escaping. The van jumps when it runs over his legs, and everything else from the other two. The shock of it seems enough to startle Red out of his panic. Ragged breaths turning shallow, and anger turns towards him as he manages a hasty escape, lowering down his head from time to time, when stray bullets manage to hit the back glass. What the hell, Frank? Doesn't offer anything in return but a look that Red somehow manages to hold. Frank hasn't apologized for who he is in a long time. He won't start now. Water. This is what I know. Memory is the same as water. It permeates and saturates, quenches, and satiates. It can hold you up or pull you under, render you weightless or drown you. It is tangible but elusive. Murdoch is barely coherent by the time they find a place to ditch the car. Frank has to drag him and sit him in the cold grass by the roadside and get him to breathe properly. He waits at least 20 minutes until he's sure the younger man can manage to move. It's not news. Red seemed to have some delayed responses sometimes, pushed through the trauma to get through the fight and crashed right after. He can't be picky, and there's no other illegal stolen cars around that he knows of to rob from bad guys, so Frank goes with the least worst option. Take from one of the local gangs he knows of. It's risky. Some of those guys have friends in high places. But he's got Red to think of, and dangling him around security cameras is a bad idea, so no walking. You stay there. Stay hidden, Frank orders. 
eyes all the while jumping from Matt's face to his surroundings, to every car that passes. It won't take long. I'll stay close, yeah? Red nods with a heavy shrug, whole body drained. Frank nods, attention orbiting the redhead's face again. The blood splatters dusting his right cheek, his eye, his neck and jaw, his lips. The muscles around his wrist and forearm tense and ripple with a spasm, fighting the urge to reach out and clean the dark red dots. Stay safe. You notice something, you run. Matt nods through a sigh, whole body deflating as he finds somewhere to sit and wait, out of sight. Frank's footsteps take a while to move out of his hearing range. The attack in the middle of FDR Drive and playing daylight opens his eyes to the severity of the situation. Someone is desperate to either kill him or take him, and Frank knows who it is. Matt wasn't fooled by his routine for a second. He had a feeling Frank knows that too. The shameless, unapologetic way the man presents himself as nothing else than Frank is somewhat fascinating, even if Matt isn't sure he has the time to dally over it. The Marine had been nothing if not a solid beacon of composure and steadfast single-mindedness through the whole time he's had him in his care. If Matt shivers, Frank brings him a scarf. If he has headaches, Frank gives him his meds. The car isn't safe. He finds another one that is. Mercenaries come after Matt to kill him. Frank kills them instead. No second thoughts. No regrets. He thinks of it while feeling oddly out of his own body, resting his head against... something. He isn't sure what. Something solid, cold, echoing the vibrations coming from the ground. Reality dawns on him at the same time it feels far away, held distant from his own body. Maybe it's the physical exertion, or the rapidly building migraine. Maybe it's because he's been in his second gunfire in under three days, and feels oddly unafraid of the fact. Maybe it's because he's already witnessed Frank Castle kill ten or more people, and he still feels safest with him. He wonders if it's because Frank's the only person he remembers and knows clearly, untouched by the fog circling thick around his mind, or because, even terrified at the prospect of a man that kills so easily, so efficiently, Matt can still identify a slight thrill of the simplicity of it, the finality. It horrifies him and settles him, too, knowing that those people can't come after them, can't hurt anyone else ever again. Always had the dark inside, he whispers, isn't sure why but can't feel his lips moving, only his voice. Murdoch boys. What was it Grandma used to say? He remembers sitting by her feet in the living room, drinking something pleasantly warm. His reflexes aren't exactly a surprise. He remembers sticks training, remembers getting ready for a war, a voice like that of a drill sergeant. It's time to stop taking a beating and start giving one. Stick knew. He smelled it on him the day after. The tears on his face. The other man's scent. He reeked of it. Couldn't get it out of himself. Milk? Something? She'd tell her neighbors sometimes. A punishing strong hand clamped around Matt's shoulder. He wasn't sure what happened, but she said Matt did something wrong. That something was wrong with him, inside him, just like his dad. There's something wrong with me, he remembers thinking, gritting his teeth because his wrists hurt and his back did too. God is punishing me for being bad, like Grandma said. Sitting on the breakfast table, the nice nun who smelled of black tea and antiseptic asked what was wrong. Why did Matt cry all night long? And he could never answer, because... Because... Because he doesn't think about it. Because he couldn't say it. She'd see it like Grandma saw it. The bad thing inside him. The dark. But Stick knew it the moment he went down to the basement. He smelled it on him for the first time. 
Matt heard his heartbeat skip in surprise, and then anger, and something he wasn't sure of that he later learned to identify as sadness. Shit, kid. And then he had nodded, hadn't he? He nodded and for the first time didn't tell Matt off for crying. I'm gonna teach you to defend yourself first, he said. Fancy kicks later. If you can't use your arms, use your legs. If you can't use your legs, bite the fucker's throat out and make him bleed. And Matt did, not a month later. The headache hits him hard when the hazy, floaty feeling dissolves, sitting on the passenger seat of the car, and with it, the sense of danger, of not being safe, of having eyes all around him. He doesn't remember Frank coming back, now that he thinks of it, but Frank's heartbeat pulsates in steady, strong thumps by his left side, one hand on the steering wheel, head leaning back against the backrest. They're moving. Car. Frank came back with a new car. The noises of the city considerably less grating with the closed windows. He thinks about asking Frank if he had slept, but it wouldn't do to give it away that he had no idea what had happened in the time span between sitting in the cold grass, thinking about his childhood, and being in the car. Last time he could properly recall being conscious, it was still afternoon, maybe close to sunset, but now the car roof was cold and so was the asphalt. The air lacked the heat sun brought with it. Frank opens a crack of his window with a sigh, and the rush of smells makes Matt suddenly dizzy. Mexican food, a block away. Car exhaust, everywhere. Sweat, garbage, garbage truck a few yards behind them. Dogs, several, park. Hudson, to the right. Cheese, pizza, no Italian place. Alcohol, a bar, cheap beer. Hudson, the same scent he smelled on the clothes on his kitchen floor the day before or what Frank said was his kitchen floor. Everything smelled of him, although dust had settled in the place. It didn't feel lived in. But the clothes. The river had washed away a lot of the smells and covered others. But there were some that could pinpoint clearly. Blood, a considerable amount of it. Gunpowder, smoke, and leather. Car seat leather. His chest hurts. Matt hears his own pulse stutter before it quickens. The throbbing pain climbing up his neck and reaching the fracture, tearing at the right side of his head. Panic builds in his throat, and he doesn't know why. The smell of the Hudson clogs his nostrils, mixes with the scent of military-grade smoke bombs that he remembers from earlier. The handgun and the sound it made when it went off. Somehow so much worse than the assault rifles and shotguns. Terrifying, in a way being attacked hadn't been. He clenches his fingers around his knees. He can't do this again. He's been panicking over nothing all the time now, and he needs to tell Frank to shut the goddamn window, but the words can't seem to come, and his voice is lost somewhere buried deep. Drowning. Matt remembers drowning. In the river? He couldn't breathe. The car went deeper and deeper. Water broke the front windows and cracked the windshield, and he couldn't breathe, couldn't find a way out. His breath leaves in a ragged cough before he remembers how to breathe, inhaling brokenly and having his whole frame shudder with the strain of it. Fingernails dig deeper in his legs, enough to sting. The pain isn't enough to snap him out of it. Isn't enough he needs. Red. Red. It doesn't sound like the first time he said his name. Red, goddammit, open your hand. He flinches away from the knuckles resting against his forearm before registering the heartbeat against the skin. Frank. He tries to tell him, tell him he can't breathe, that there's no air, that his chest feels too tight and he's scared and doesn't know why that he was drowning and he needed help. Open your hand, Red. Come on, you're okay. He does as told, 
fingernails unlocking painfully from the skin above his knees and the fabric of his pants. Two small pills get dropped on his shaky left palm. Just swallow them. It'll make you better. Frank seems to take his hesitation as stubbornness, which works just as fine for Matt if it covers the fact that he can't remember how to move without panicking more. What is this other one? His voice is embarrassingly small and choked up. No air left in the room for the words to come out, completely formed. Chest goes up and down too fast, but he doesn't recognize the chemical smell coming from the second oval-shaped pill, compared with the capsule-like shape of the paracetamol. Frank nods, softly in acknowledgement. Of what, Matt's not sure. It's Xanax. Just take it, Red. He drops the pills in his mouth with trembling hands and struggles with pushing them down his throat enough that Frank feels the need to check him before hissing out an alarmed, Shit! Matt startles, body straightening up in his seat, muscles tensing around his arms and shoulders as he hones his senses outside, one arm coming to grab Frank and pull him back, away from the windows. He isn't sure why, but they stopped and all the other cars around them did too. Spot the threats. Tame the pain into submission. Has to protect Frank. Cover the car. Find the threats. Make sure no one is hurt. He's got to make sure no one gets hurt. Hey, hey, it's fine. Spot the threats. Three teenagers laugh in the car behind him. A dog barks. Someone blares a horn. A motorcycle drives past them. Glass breaks. Sirens far away. Red, it's fine. There's nothing there. Matt presses Frank back when he tries to move. Away from the windows. Away from the shooters and the bullets. Has to find somewhere safe to hide him. Has to spot the threats before they... Hands close around his wrist. Matt flinches away with a cry before recognizing the heartbeat pressed against his own pulse. Frank. Red. Heartbeat too fast thundering over his ears. How can he spot the bad guys if he can't hear them over his own heart? Red, calm down. There's nothing out there. Nothing? No, that's not right. Frank was surprised by something. He saw something that alarmed him. Has to find the air so he can fight and protect him. Keep them away from the car. Buy Frank time to escape and... Red, we're both safe. Listen to me. Do that ninja thing you do. I'm not lying, am I? Matt tilts his head towards him every breath burning in his chest. No, he's not lying. They're safe? Come here. Frank's hands direct him to turn his body towards his left. His voice is surprisingly soft. He thinks it's the first time he's heard it like that. Your nose is bleeding again. Oh, but why was Frank scared? He sounded alarmed. Worried, maybe? Frank takes something out of the glove box in a movement that, in his drowsiness, Matt can't track, before the marines leaning closer to him. Letting Matt get a whiff of his scent before blood drips over Frank's shoulder. His blood. He wants to apologize. He should apologize. But breathing is still difficult, and Matt can't figure out the words. Why? Words. Words! He needs to find the words! Frank presses a cloth against his nose, a palm cradling the back of his skull and helping him tilt back. Why were you scared? I wasn't scared. A pause. Frank presses slightly harder before letting go and checking his nostrils, using a cloth to wipe the blood staining his lips and chin. Just shouldn't have been bleeding like that. It's the third time already. Oh. Worried about him? The bleeding seems to have stopped, but Frank doesn't let go immediately. No. Cloth-covered fingers rub at the bridge between his lips and nose, as if wiping a particularly nasty stain. Did it... stop? 
he asks, partially because he wants to know if he should worry, and partially because he isn't sure what to think of Frank's intense focus zeroed solely on him for such a length of time. Skin prickles with the idea that it felt like Frank had found something he really liked, and it was either the sight of Matthew bleeding, or his lips, or both. Matt isn't sure which one he prefers. Not for the first time. He speculates on what kind of relationship Frank and him had before. Whatever happened to him happened to him. A friend? A colleague? A father figure? A lover? Maybe Frank just felt the need to take care of people, or maybe he got stuck in this situation without wanting to. Maybe Frank got all the craziness and walls he built to keep people away, felt the incessant need for connection, too. Maybe Matt was projecting. He could live with those three possibilities. Anything else was too much right now. Puts the control of their relationship on Frank's hands and not on Matt's lacking memory. Frank clears his throat before letting go of the cloth, dropping it carelessly over the gear lever. His heart does something odd when he turns to look at him again and finds Matt staring right at his eyes, where Matt can hear his eyelids move. Not the usual telling sign of pity or discomfort drawn from his dead irises, but a falter, like surprise. We're clear, he says, and Matt comes to realize they're moving again, just past a heavy buzzing he came to recognize as streetlights. I'm taking you to Kurt now. Who's Kurt? Frank's heartbeat does another surprised little jump. His voice sounds oddly monotonous when he answers. A friend to help me when you were hurt. Matt smiles softly, slightly confused at Frank's forlorn tone. I thought you were the one who put my head back together. Frank's heart stutters again, but not in amusement at the quip, something farther away from anger and closer to dread that Matt couldn't quite figure out. He hated swimming, especially after he went blind and his senses started developing. He couldn't say his childhood had been sheltered in any way. Matt had learned to take care of himself from a young age, and he remembered that particularly well, even if a few gaps and chunks were missing. His clearest memories were from his 9 to 12 years old, although the chronology had a tendency of getting lost on him. Matt didn't have many friends when he was younger. His dad worked a lot most of the day, and Matt spent a lot of time alone at home, forbidden from going out, that is, after Grandma died and he couldn't stay with her. He did remember Lindsay Shelton from school, one Matt met only months before the accident. Her appearance comes to him so clearly then, long, thin braids that went all the way to her waist, thin eyebrows, dark skin like chocolate, yellow hair clips over her ear, remembers how a lot of older kids picked on her because she was so much smaller than the other kids their age. Her and Matt, also scrawny for his age, quickly became acquainted. Remembers almost drowning in the public pool, the one day Dad managed to take them both, and drowning in the Hudson with so much clarity that, when they're closer to Kurt's place and rain starts pouring down, his heartbeat doubles. He doesn't panic, not this time. Maybe because he's too drained, or maybe because of the Xanax. It makes him loopy, weird. He's in the car, sitting by a man he barely knows, but feels he can trust with his life. But he's also hearing Dad's alarm shouts and Lindsay's scared, distant shrieks. A car honks past them. Dad pulls him out of the pool. Frank says something. Lindsay's tears fall all over his face when she cries over his chest. He doesn't tell Frank what's happening. Is not sure of it himself. A flashback? No, he knew where he was. He was in the car with Frank. They just parked outside of Kurt's building. It's raining, and Matt's friend is scared, because she thinks it's her fault he can't swim. Stepping out of the car makes the ghost touch of her small, childish fingers disappear. 
Raindrops make the world around him come around in a myriad of bright, tonal reds and flashing embers, and Matt has to breathe deeply several times before closing the door. Frank looks different than what he had imagined. Matthew can't exactly see in the rain. He has zero light perception. His sight extends like an endless void in front of him. It's just that the radar sense works perfectly with the tiny sound waves each drop creates. Sometimes it can be overwhelming, depending on the rainfall. But if he focuses, just like this, he can hear the symphony of drops falling over Frank's face and body, and outlining every curve and edge, instead of his impressionist-like blurry picture from before. He can see. Matt sees his deep-set eyes, the strong eyebrows curved over them, and the beautifully well-defined jawline. He follows the raindrop to a Botticelli-worthy upper lip, sculpted into a curve just below a crooked nose. The bridge healed unevenly from too many breaks. His hair was kept buzzed at the sides, and slightly longer on top. His ears were... endearing, to say the least. Matt can't help a small, tired chuckle. Frank's heartbeat falters, and he turns to stare. His puzzled expression makes Matt turn up to the sky with a free laugh. He didn't know his senses could do that. He can see. You have ridiculous ears. Frank's pulse indicates surprise once more, and something like disbelief. And you broke your nose at least eight times. Frank doesn't snort, but there's something like amusement in his tone when he speaks. How in the hell would you know that, Red? Matt only offers him a small smile in return. The exhaustion sank deep in his bones. But standing in the rain there, listening to how Frank looks like, it feels like he can keep going, if only for a bit. I just do. He thinks Frank scoffs, bullshit, under his breath, but the raindrops like thunderclaps hit the shell of his ear, and Matt flinches. The sudden interference with his hearing throws him off balance, which is maybe why Frank is suddenly there, just distant enough not to crowd him, but at a distance that allows him to catch Matt should he take a tumble. Kurt lives in an apartment, and he doesn't appreciate the stairs. He's had more than enough panic attacks and commotion for the day. Frank doesn't reach out to steady him until it becomes clear he can't keep going on his own, and, even then, he doesn't ask if he needs a break. So Matt keeps walking when his head starts throbbing. He keeps walking when his shot leg protests fiercely against the steps. Keeps walking when the pain builds up so high that he feels like throwing up and almost faints. And when he gets his feet under him, he walks some goddamn more. Castle is a steady, solid presence through it all, if not for the grumbled curses of almost there, goddammit, breathe, and keep going, soldier. And Matt wants to tell him that he's wrong, because he wasn't a part of Stick's war, because Stick left him, because Matt wasn't good enough. Or was it Dad that left? No, no, Dad died. He found him dead in the alley with a gunshot to the head and a stab wound to the stomach. No, no stab wound. Who died with a stab wound? Who? Get in. An extra heartbeat among the myriad of others in the apartment complex gets Matt jumping. Shit, Frank, he looks like a ghost. He was supposed to be resting, not walking around like... Yeah, yeah, place to sit him down. For the love of... His head was open a week ago. Kurt, I found you a wheelchair. Why? Frank's trigger finger jumps against his thigh. You try and make him stay still, Kurt. The man... Curtis, sighs before guiding both of them towards a kitchen table, and Frank finally gets Matt to sit down. The reprieve should feel like heaven on the overworked muscle of his left thigh, still recuperating from the gunshot wound, but his body is too out of it to register. He isn't sure how much time passes from the moment the second heartbeat, not Frank, 
slower, two inches taller, broader, antiseptic and good coffee, metal-sounding leg, leaves the room to when he comes back. He digs his fingers into his healing thigh. The pain makes him sharper, needs to stay alert, needs to. He flinches away from foreign fingers attempting to touch his hair. His hand forms a fist. His leg muscles tighten. The fingers go away. Familiar ones close around his wrist. Hey, take it easy. Bad coffee, gunpowder, smoke. Frank. Easy. Danger. Needs to... There's no danger. It's my buddy Kurt. He's a medic. Take it easy, Red. I just wanted to take a look at your head wound, if that's okay. If you don't want me to touch you, I won't. Matt waits for the telltale skip of his heartbeat. The proof of a lie. Nothing comes. His body is still hesitant to trust. Muscles tense and about to snap, even when he slowly nods. The fingers come back. Matt feels the foreign pulse through the skin as it prods around his scalp, feather-like touches tracing the scabbing wound. All right, Matthew, how's the pain? I can take it. A skip of two heartbeats. Matt tilts his head, smells the air. No anger, although Frank's heart speeds up slightly before he forces it back down. Kurt stays slightly faster. Right, but is it bad? What well, doesn't matter if it's bad. He can take it. Sometimes. All right. The man slowly tilts his head against the light. It looks clean, healing slow but well. Did you have any fever? He realizes he doesn't know the answer to that question, just before Frank catches on to the same. He didn't. Ringing in your ears? Death episodes? Alterations in taste or smell? Ringing, he mumbles. Sometimes. Hands move to check his pupils. The man takes a flashlight, switches it on. How's the nausea? Mm. Throws up from time to time. Frank answers for him. Think it's the post-concussion syndrome you talked about. Curtis makes a vague sound in consideration. Could be. The flashlights are swished off. The man leans back against his own chair. How's your appetite? Frank grunts from his place, arms crossed over his chest like a guard. Eats like a goddamn bird. Matt ignores him. He eats what he can keep. He's not supposed to waste food. The nun said... Or was it Dad? No, he's quite sure he heard something in the orphanage, too. And Stick said differently. Food is fuel. You're not supposed to enjoy it. How's your sleep? Uh, it's okay. Kurt must see something in his face, because he turns to Frank for confirmation. And Matt does a poor attempt at hiding his scowl. He's not a child, goddammit. Sleeps most of the day sometimes, but it's fitful. Still having those episodes I told you about. He snaps his head towards Frank, frowning. He didn't have any episodes, did he? He's about to refute the statement out loud before remembering the day he woke up with the glass shards all over his hands in a broken window. Have you had any bleeding? From the wound? Ears? Nose? I don't think. His nose did for a bit, Frank mentions, and it's the first time Matt catches something akin to a reluctance in his voice. After some running? Jesus Christ, Frank! The man in question only shrugs in response. Curtis seems to shake his head before turning to Matt again. It could be post-op hypertension. Blood pressure goes up. Capillaries can burst inside your nostrils, causing the bleeding, which is why you need to rest as much as you can. Stress when you're recovering from head injuries can be really harmful. Another sigh. Exuding barely contained disapproval. Any numbness in your extremities? Motor impairments? Silence stretches thin before Matt raises his eyebrows pettily. Oh, I can answer for myself now? Kurt snorts as Frank huffs through his nose. 
No numbness. My right hand is getting better. That's good to know. Squeeze my fingers, please. Matt does as told, squeezing as hard as he can with one hand and then moving on to the other. It's improved, but the muscle is still weak. Are you doing the exercises Frank's taught you? Yes. Good. You'll probably regain full function, but I can't be sure. It's not my specialty. He lets go, and Matt's hands go back to his lap. Any periods of confusion, lost time, or hallucinations? He freezes, immediately tries to conceal it with a careful shake of his head, presses his lips then. Frank's gaze burns at his skin. No, Matt answers in an undertone, voice coming off too weak and little convincing. None. He doesn't need eyes to notice Frank and Curtis exchanging a cryptic glance. Childhood. This matters because I've lived on that side of life that you all have made for me. Me. Partitioned. The orphaned one. The itch under his skin spreads until it takes over, an unrelenting pressure at the back of his head. Fingers open and close around the steering wheel. He gazes at the new bottle of painkillers held tight in Red's hand before his eyes strafe towards the reflection of a sutured skull on the foggy window. Frank's geared up. Every muscle is ready to act, and he has to fight every single impulse that tells him to do something. He has nowhere to go, nothing to fight, so he clenches his fingers harder over the wheel and stays put, heart pounding like a freight train that has got to be pissing Frank's sensitive ears off, but he keeps quiet, and so does Frank. Glancing from time to time at raindrops reflecting in sightless eyes that can't appreciate the beauty of it. God damn it. He abruptly changes course turning left when he was supposed to go straight, finding a spot by Rupert Park, empty. It's a few minutes past midnight already, and the roar of the traffic in the second and third avenues are far away enough that Frank can just barely make it over the rumble of the engine. He takes another look at Red, then, whose head is slanted slightly towards him in silent acknowledgement of the detour. Frank sighs heavily, lets all the air leave his lungs before turning off the car and leaning against the backrest. You gonna talk? He drawls, left hand joining the right one over his thigh as it drops off the wheel, trigger finger twitching restlessly. Nothing to fix. Nothing to do. Talk about what? Cut the shit, Red. Murdoch's jaw works. Frank considers him with creased eyebrows before angling his body towards him, his face set in the beginnings of a scowl, to the point he carefully schools it into nonchalance. I don't know what you mean, but I do know that we can't stay here, so if you will... Frank's scoff interrupts him before it turns into a derisive laugh, only serving to get Murdoch worked up. Good. Let him burn along with Frank. Better keep that bullshit of yours before you run out of it, Red. Matthew turns away from him, and the sutures reflect an impressionist-like strokes of dull color on the window, the picture forming poorly on the droplets merging together to form bigger ones and collecting at the frame. The lamppost's light catches on shaking hands. Why didn't you tell me you were hallucinating? Frank asks in an undertone, something somber in his voice. Murdoch scoffs, but there's no humor in it. No real reaction besides a bitter, forced indifference. Or resignation. Who knows? Red presses his knuckles against his teeth, as if about to tear it off in frustration, turning to stare out the window in a world he can't see. Maybe it's the realization of how vulnerable he must feel, and how much he must hate it, that Frank lets the accusations fall from his voice. Hey. When softer doesn't work, he turns sterner. Hey. It feels like calling Junior out on lying, 
like telling Lisa she can't get into fights, even if he was proud of her for protecting her friends from bullies. He shakes his head out of the thought when his guts twist and turn over themselves. Reaching out to tap Red's upper arm, Frank reminds himself to do it slowly. First touch soft, showing he's not a threat. The words in the crumpled paper inside his pocket burned into the back of his eyelid. Gunshot. Touch. Name. Nudges with a little more pressure behind it when Red doesn't flinch, calling his attention back to the car. The presence. Away from the rain, or whatever was happening in his fucked up head. Red. Now gentler, coaxing him out of his shell like he used to do with his kids when they cried. Back when he had people to hold on to. People he hadn't held strong enough. It doesn't surprise him that it works and Red deflates, angling his head towards Frank, eyes staring vacantly while his lips twitch from time to time, fingertips playing with the hem of his sweater. Frank notices the little blood drops caught in the wool. His left knuckles are reddened by the jab he threw at Beard Guy earlier. His right ones are soft, long healed over from the warehouse fight. Frank suddenly wants to press his lips against it, against proof that Red maybe has a lot in common with Frank but he'll always be different. Better. Innocent. Wants to taste that innocence on his lips. The light red had inside, that spark of wildfire he couldn't erase. Talk to me, red. I don't know, he says, and it's clear it kills him, either the admitting or the pain of not knowing swallowing him up. Sometimes it's like a dream. The world feels weird. There's noises coming from nowhere, and smells or tastes that I know aren't there. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning. Frank waits him out when he suddenly stops, allows his own knuckles, scarred and layered with bruises, to graze over the skin of Red's forearm briefly. He was still losing a bit of weight, the Marine noted vaguely. The devil. Frank's heartbeat jumps like a bull against a cage before he forces it down. I know it sounds... ridiculous, but I know it's him. Sometimes he's just there, and sometimes he talks, and I don't know why I... Words die before they make it out. Red shakes his head before turning back to Frank. It doesn't happen often now, just sometimes and briefly. It's fine. Frank wants to laugh, wants to do something with his hands. Shoot Red in the head and he comes back to save you from torture. Chain him to a chimney and he comes back to help you out of a death penalty. Hurt him and he forgives you. Trap him and he tries to save you. Take everything away from him and he's still there, body and mind soaking up abuse like it's no big deal. No, it's not, Matt. In the silence that grows after his voice fades, there's understanding. A distance Frank doesn't try to impose by refusing to call him by name. An honesty Red doesn't try and hide behind snark and stubbornness. Murdoch looks a lot more like the guy Frank knew before everything. The lawyer with the relentless sense of justice. The vigilante who'd sooner get killed than let someone get hurt. The guy who had two people who would give him the world, if only he knew how to ask, and who he'd die to protect. And here they are now. <gasps> Hurts! Everywhere and he can't make it stop. It's the first word through his lips once he wakes up. Smells blood, gunpowder, cordite, urine dust. Hurts! Hurts! Red. He's moving. Why is he moving? He needs to stop. He's got to hide. He needs to hide before... Red, it was just a dream. Red, it was just a dream. Hurts! He isn't sure what. His head. His head hurt. His belly. His thigh. It all hurt. Red, what's my name, huh? Can you tell me? Voice. Deep. Tense. Familiar heartbeat. Gunpowder. Coffee. Shaving cream. Smoke. F 
Frank! A sob. It hurts! The moving stops. The world comes to a halt so suddenly Matt feels sick. Car? Clunk of metal. Unfastened seat belt. Fabric against leather. Frank shifts in his seat. Hounds on the back of his head. He flinches away before the heartbeat under the skin registers. Frank. Hey, Red. Listen to me. Words. His teeth clatter. He's shaking too much. Muscles quiver and quake. And Matt can't be moving like this. They'll see him. And if they see him... They can't see him. I know. Hands on his face. Thumbs wiping tears away. But it's just a memory. It's not now. Now you're safe, yeah? You're safe in the car with me. We're going back to the safe house. Frank? They can't see them. They need to escape. He needs to run. Frank needs to be safe. Frank! His whole body shudders when warm palms come in contact with his upper arms. Pulls him slightly closer. Hey. Hey. Sterner. Matt snaps his head up. You're safe. Softer now. You're not there, remember? You got out. He did. You're in the car with me. You're not there. Leather underneath his fingertips, rumbling engine. He got out. I'm not there. That's it. A forehead presses gently with his for barely a few seconds. Matt flinches before relaxing into it. Come on. By the time they get back to Frank's walk-up apartment complex, the memory of the dream is jumbled and blurry, and Matt's bones are heavy like they're about to detach and fall off of his torso. Frank keeps quiet, and Matt does the same, caught between trying to remember the dream and why it got him so scared, between doubts that he couldn't help musing about. Why did your heart jump? he wants to ask. Why weren't you surprised? They go around the block three times before Frank's assured no one's tailed them, and only then do they go inside. Wondering about Frank's lack of proper reaction to Matt's one reoccurring character in his hallucination episode gets him wondering about other things, too. Frank wasn't surprised that he knew how to fight. He was surprised when he learned about Stick for some reason, though. And how did he become Frank's lawyer anyway? Was he a public defender and didn't have any choice in the matter? Did he have a big enough reputation to be referred to mass-murdering vigilante types? Frank knew about his fighting skills, but he didn't know about the hand or the chaste, so how did he know? How does a client, a fugitive nonetheless, become close enough to his lawyer to the point of rescuing him from a bad situation? Because that's all Matt's been able to drag out of Frank until now, and keep him around for so long. All the questions drain out of his mind once they start going up the stairs. Matt tries his best, but it's been a long day and he's past being overworked. So Frank helps. The dizziness is not only physical, it permeates the air around him like a cloak makes oxygen clot in his throat, nausea puncturing like a hook through his guts. It builds and builds until he's not much different than a puppet, and Frank's holding on to all of his strings while Matt does his best to keep a hold of whatever it is he still has under his control. He wants to rage, suddenly, at his body for not doing what it's supposed to, at his skull that didn't hold when it was all it had to do, at Frank for hiding things from him, at his apartment that didn't stir any memories whatsoever, at the devil for not leaving him alone. At his broken memory. Chronology that works backwards and means nothing. He's a sick kid in his father's arms with pneumonia after almost drowning. He's a man with no face. A lawyer with no recollection past his teens. And Frank Castle, that keeps poking him with his silence. His unwavering presence. Frank, that's not actively trying to fix him. Mac wonders if he doesn't care to, 
or if he maybe thinks there's no point, that there's nothing there capable of ever mending again. He's mad. He knows that. But he finds himself repeating it in the fear that the pounding ache and sheer bone-deep exhaustion will take the name away from him again. Matt Murdock. The feel of Dad's calluses when they rushed through his hair. Matt Murdock. The cold, wet concrete from the alleyway. Matt Murdock. Frank. Solid and real. Holding him up as they climb the stairs. He isn't sure how he gets to the rooftop. There's a noise he isn't sure about. Can't put a name to. And maybe that's what drags him up here. If Frank asked him to retrace his steps, Matt isn't sure he'd be able to. He heard a noise. He had to investigate. So he went. He needed to get to the rooftop, so he did. Dad tells him there's work to do. Get up. Get to work. And Stick shadows him. Harsher. Crueler. Weak. Get up. Bite that fucker's throat out and make him bleed. He has a memory. He's not sure it's real. Of Stick sitting in the apartment Frank took him to. An apple in one hand, a sharp knife in the other. The place smells like home, even if Matt isn't so sure he knows what that smells like. Soft will creep up on you and strangle you in your sleep. There's another memory, close enough to the same smell. If he closes his eyes, he can hear it. He's almost sure it's a woman, but it gets confused sometimes, and Matt is back to doubting, questioning. Rest, Matthew, she says, hands smaller but just as calloused as his own, caresses his shoulder. Rest. Matt sits, tries to focus on the memory like that's going to pull the thread and bring others with it. But, as all the other days before, it's useless. He only frustrates himself in attempt after attempt. Instead, he thinks of Frank, the scar over his scalp. The bone was once broken where the bullet hit and fragmented. Got shot in the head, he had said, but I survived Red. And he sounded like he regretted that more than anything else surviving when his family didn't. Frank has another scar in his head, this one over his right ear, so much like Matt's. Superficial, although the skin is uneven and the edges are thicker, slightly puckered, more recent than the other one, a bullet graze. Maybe because it almost oozed out before, Matt's head sometimes felt like it was a high-pressure chamber, like his skull was closing in and in. It made Matt feel like poking a hand inside and pushing the bone away from the brain matter. Frank rubs the bullet scar in his scalp every time he's frustrated or nervous, but he never touches the one over his ear. It's like a mistake he wears on his skin, a regret as threatening as it is sad. The man in question finds him like that, pondering about the person who had Matt at his mercy, a man who killed easily and efficiently, with no hesitation, remorse or apologies, and yet held him gently when he panicked, offered him soft assurances and deep, soothing tones. Frank's temperature is up. Maybe at the sight of a blind man standing on the roof. A blind man that knew how to climb his way up there in the first place. Who knew how to fight and hit precisely where it would take his enemies out of commission. Who knew how to permanently maim someone if need be. He remembers the man from the church. A parishioner, or maybe a priest. He doesn't know. Matt can't help wondering until which point his memory is correct, and where does it start to fail. He remembers hands. Remembers using the candle holder to beat the man until he stopped moving. Remembers the social worker that came asking questions that Matt didn't want to answer, and he had stopped moving, stopped breathing. And then, when he found he could speak, he said no. He never touched me, he said, but you should talk to Rue and Charlie next door. She asked again, because she knew. At the time, Matthew was convinced she saw it in him, that everyone could see it in him, that maybe he'd be able to see it too, 
if God hadn't taken his eyes from him. Frank sits by his side. Matt finds himself speaking before he can question himself why. At the orphanage, some of the older kids, they... He swallows, focuses on Frank's presence beside him, steady. When new kids arrived, they'd ask, What was the last thing your parents said before they died? It was like some kind of game. Who had the most to say? Who'd start crying? Who didn't know? They'd say, You have to know. It's the last thing they ever told you. They asked you? Yeah. Matt remembers so clearly, it's almost frightening. The air got sucked out of him, because Dad's voice felt so close, like he could almost touch it. I'll be home soon, Maddie. Do your homework. He had smiled big, and Matt knew he wouldn't throw the fight. Love you, kiddo. Cheer for me, yeah? It's the one thing Matt suddenly wishes he'd forget. What did you do? I punched them. Frank snorts suddenly. It brings a smile to Matt's face in return. A lot of times, too. He lets Frank's huffed, gritty laugh spread like vines through grimy concrete and wash over him. Feels the blossom in his chest. Matt chuckles a little in tandem to Frank's amusement. Battle and Jack's ghost hangs between them lighter than seconds ago. His laughter dwindles down, and he wonders if Frank, like the social workers and the nuns, could see it in him too. A kid still looking for his dad, still hiding from a monster. It's a whimper and a cut-off scream that shakes Matt out of his head. He stands up too quickly, leg muscles straining violently to hold him up, barely noticing the warm chest that catches him when he tips backwards, hot vomit splashing up the back of his throat, acid on his tongue before he manages to force it down. A woman's crying. His own heartbeat doubles. There are three men. They're... Frank, they're going to hurt her! His feet make the decision before he's consciously aware of it. He's running towards the edge of the roof with straining lungs and a pounding pulse, stumbling pathetically in his exhaustion. Frank catches him before he can move two steps forward. Get to work! Get to work! Matt fights Frank's grip when it closes around his wrist. No, no, get off me! They're hurting her! They're hurting her! I have to do something! Let go! Three men and she's alone and she can't run or call for help and... Frank's saying a lot of things, but none that Matt cares to decipher. He struggles so hard he can feel the remaining energy as it sweeps right off of his pores, with his sweat. And when he's got nothing left to give, he keeps struggling. His body gives up before he does, limbs falling listlessly and heavy, and his mind goes blank. Zipper opening, a derisive laugh, a muffled yelp. And only then does Frank leave. Matt stands there, swaying on his feet, pathetic on a rooftop, unable to stop what's happening, unable to stop a life from being ruined. Can't save Dad, can't protect himself, can't kill, can't fight the war, can't get to work, can't do anything. He's weak, so fucking weak, and now someone else is paying for it. Doesn't feel it when he gives in to the shaking and knees hit concrete. He waits for something, a sound, a tell, but his ears are buzzing and he's checked out long ago. Frank comes back. It could have been minutes or days later. The length of time passed is a mystery. He's barely moved, and it's difficult to identify any soreness in his knees that could be telling. But his whole body is one large aching bruise. Frank smells of copper, thick and dripping from his boots, splattered on his face and hands in the front of his shirt. The taste is pungent, closer to his belt, where the army knife is sheathed. Sirens ring like funeral church bells. Frank killed them, and Matt didn't do a thing to stop him. Perhaps it's because the world hasn't collapsed on its knees like Matt, that it feels like something has changed. You killed them, he says. The voice doesn't feel like his own, 
that that's been happening a lot since he woke up in the cabin. Yeah. No apologies, no remorse. I wanted to. Frank's heartbeat stutters for the first time. What? When I was a kid, I wanted to, and I could. I was good, really good. He swallows the memory of the candle holder in his hand, blood staining the metal. I wanted him gone. Next time I heard him come after a kid, I... I was ready to make him bleed, make him scared, and I did. But a sister caught us, me and Rue and him, and she called the cops. All his strength leaves him once all the words are said, his lungs straining as if he had been holding his breath, and maybe he was. Can't bother with it for now. Air goes in and goes out, or it doesn't, and then it doesn't matter. Frank's voice is the closest to cold that it's ever been with him when he asks, Did you tell them? Matt turns his head away, and Frank finds in it an answer of its own kind. Of course you didn't. It's barely a whisper. He feels it like a knife. He wants to laugh, ask Frank what is so obvious in this scenario for him, that he feels the need to comment. And then he wants to rage, ask Frank what could he possibly know about what happened, about what that man did. But he has no strength left for anything body reaching a breaking point, and mind way past it, and discussing that part of Matt's childhood is the last thing he wants. That's bad, buddy. A voice he can't recognize echoes in his head. You always have the energy to debate. Of course he didn't tell them, he wanted to say. What was the point? Matt would leave for the war soon. The chase was going to be needed, and Matt was coming with them. But Stick left. And then it didn't matter anymore. The nuns didn't talk about the man ever again. Rue and Charlie were taken somewhere with doctors and therapists, and last Matt knew, one of them had been adopted. They go back inside, and Frank helps him cover his wounds with plastic wrap for a shower. The devil comes back once, when his head is under the water spray, but it doesn't linger long. His presence is oddly reassuring, and Matt is achingly alone when it leaves. He isn't sure what Red's range is with those ears of his, but Frank can't risk leaving him defenseless in the apartment with the broken window, so he keeps close, walks down to the alleyway to the left of the building, and the pretense of throwing away the trash as Murdoch showers. Palms reach up to rub at the short hair on the back of his head, the small patch where it grew slower over the scar tissue the bullet left behind. He looks down at the glowing screen in his right hand, bluish-white light forming a halo around the device. He just has to press the call button. It's all he's got to do. The scar prickles where it was once again a gaping wound, where bullet tore right through the mushy part of his brain and left him to bleed out in the park. Take me home, Red's voice begs in his head, same way he had in the hospital. But there's no home for either of them, not now. There's Frank's safe houses and Red's place, but those won't ever be home like they used to be. He presses down on the button, shoves the phone close to his right ear. Frank? Her voice is so small it's barely recognizable. The guilt reaches a boiling point, and Frank curses himself for not having called earlier. But he had good reason. Couldn't risk this shitstorm on her, not with everything that's happened. With Fisk out of prison and in that goddamn penthouse and everything that came after. Maybe it started before, even. At Midland fucking Circle, maybe. Or. Or at the rooftop, with Red holding his girl in his arms as she died. Karen? She exhales a huff of breath. Heavy, but the intent is lost in the static. Either disbelief or relief. Maybe just plain exhaustion. Her tears, though. Frank can hear them in her voice. The strain of a lump that wraps around his own throat. He's alive. Her breath hitches in a small sob. Matt? Matt is with you? Oh my god! Oh my god! 
think. I thought he... I thought they... I know. Gaze goes back to the sidewalk and the street he can see, sweeping from left to right. He's, uh... He's recovering. Karen looks soft on the outside, but that woman is made of steel. Frank knew it from the moment she walked inside the hospital room. Nothing but compassion and sharp edges on the inside. Frank knows she can take it. Everything that's happened. What he's about to say. Doesn't mean he really fucking wished he didn't have to. Can I talk to him? Why didn't he call? I thought... Karen, he got hit in the head pretty bad. The picture of the two or so inches of exposed brain and fractured bone is seared into the back of his eyelids. Hard to shake that off. He rubs at the scar on the back of his head again. Tries to wipe out Red's trembling voice, begging, Take me home! Please take me home! And Lisa, pressing a book against his hands. Please, Dad! Just the first part, please! In his own lie, Tomorrow, baby, he tells her again and again. I'll read it to you tomorrow, I promise. Had to take him somewhere, put his skull back in place. Jesus! Lisa's voice fades with the shuddering inhale on the shell of his ear. His head's all messed up, Karen. He could barely remember who he was in the first few days. Knows only bits and pieces of his childhood now, let alone you or Nelson. He doesn't remember shit, Karen. But how... He needs to be in a hospital, Frank. He can't recover if... What do you think happens the moment I bring him in, Karen? Feds are looking for him. Fisk's looking. You know that. A newspaper left on the floor catches his attention. It's one he remembers seeing over a week ago. Grabs it to stare at the front page. A blurry picture of a bloodied warehouse with police tape all around it. The headlines, like when he first read them, makes his stomach clench. I know. I know just... She's crying, trying her hardest to keep it down, but little sounds keep making their way over to his side of the line. Just, I don't know what to do. Frank closes his eyes with a pained sigh, the desperation in her tone and the stifled sobs making his skin prickle all over. He leans back against the wall, dank concrete pressing against his shaved head. I, I've been trying to connect what happened in the warehouse with Fisk to go after him. You stay away from him, Karen. His heart clenches painfully. You stay away from this, you hear me? She doesn't answer. Of course she won't stay away. She's got little left to lose to that piece of shit. Take care of Matt, Frank. Please. Please. Frank grunts in response, squeezing his eyes together before opening them to the faint light creeping in on the alley. He's tough. He's red. Do you think his memory? Do you? I don't know. He really hopes it does, but there's no way to know. It's coming back slowly, but I don't think it's from the hit, Karen. Muffled static over the line. Karen thinks maybe she presses the phone to her chest to hide the sound of her crying. When can I see him? We'll see. It's all he can offer. All right? Yeah, just... Just keep in touch, Frank, please. And take care of him. Don't let them... A pause. She takes a deep breath. Just take care of him. Frank nods, bile rising in his throat. Yeah. He finishes the call and looks down at the headlines on the front page from a week ago, when the world fucking ended and Red didn't even know why. Daredevil, wanted for murder. The end for the hero of Hell's Kitchen? Rise. To white noise, half silences, and a blank harmony is all comes to nothing. Pones and excerpts taken from In Order of Appearance Symbol for Static Brief, Gilbert Maxwell, Swift Shot, Kina, From Bodies of Water, T. Greenwood, 
Make me human or give me death. Mei Yang. From Flux. Afa Michael Weaver. Trigger warnings. Drowning. Matt has a series of flashbacks throughout the first part. Paper cut and the second part, water. It's not extremely detailed, although it mentions the events. Violence. There is once again fighting scenes and gun-related injuries in some parts. Emotional triggers. Matt is triggered by the sounds of a handgun firing. Past sexual assault on a minor. Matt recalls with more detail about being sexually abused in the orphanage. It does not go into detail about what happened exactly, and nor will it happen. The events are mentioned only in detail as to how it affected Matt and not how it happened. There is a mention of the offender having done the same to other kids in St. Agnes, and Matt attempting an attack on said man. Attempted rape. Matt overhears a woman being attacked by three men. It happens during the third part of the work, childhood. Frank stops them before anything can happen.